0: Higher Voltage is brought to you by eCity Interactive. For over 20 years, eCity Interactive has created websites and digital marketing strategies and solutions for colleges and universities that deliver results and exceed expectations. Their latest offerings to higher ed clients include enrollment funnel diagnostics and enrollment support services that efficiently attract and engage potential applicants with results you have to see for yourself. To learn more, visit eCityInteractive.com. Hello, and welcome to Higher Voltage, a podcast about higher education that explores what's working, what's not, and what needs to change in higher ed marketing and administration. I'm your host, Kevin Tyler. Welcome back to Higher Voltage. It's been a while since we've been together, but I'm so excited for today's guest. Uh, Today, we have Colin Diver. Uh, Professor Emeritus at the University of Pennsylvania Law School and former president of Reed College, one of the trailblazers in the rankings conversation. He has a new book out called Breaking Ranks. How the Rankings Industry Rules Higher Education and What to Do About It. Uh, this is an exciting read. I loved it. Um, I'm glad to have this conversation with you, Colin. I love your bio, which reads, I am active on LinkedIn and very inactive on Facebook. I think that is the Thanks. most powerful way to say it. <laughs> it's a great <laughs> line. I'd love to for folks to hear a little bit about your background outside of the, the items that I just rattled off about where you are now and where you've been, but just kind of what got you into this conversation around rankings before we dive into some of the more meaty parts of this Conversation.
1: Sure, Kevin, I'd be happy to. Uh, my academic career started in uh, professional schools. I, I was teaching in a business school and a law school. And eventually, like <laughs> many of my colleagues, blundered my way into administration and I became a dean. And that was at the University of Pennsylvania Law School, as you mentioned. And during the time, the very first year, in fact, that I was dean at Penn. U.S. News and World Report started to rank law schools. Prior to that, of course, they had ranked colleges, but they decided they would expand their empire and get into ranking of professional schools. So they ranked uh, law schools for um, essentially the rest of my 10 years as dean at the law school. And that kind of taught me to hate the rankings. (laughs) But then I had the odd experience, uh, unusual experience of becoming the president of a college that had renounced the rankings. Uh, Reed College, prior to my becoming its president, had decided that they would not cooperate with uh, the U.S. News rankings. And uh, I, of course, had to decide whether to continue that policy, which I happily did. But I also had to decide how we could be honest and not um, boast about how we're doing in other rankings, Uh, because after all, there are a lot of different rankings, not just the U.S. news rankings. So pretty soon we had pulled out of virtually all the rankings and we made a policy of not boasting about how we were doing in any of the rankings. I think this is exciting. Anyone who knows me
0: knows that I am um, very vocal about my disdain about the rankings industry and um, my disdain uh, and disappointment about their impact on higher education. Right. Um, but seeing your book and really very quickly understanding some of the perspectives that you have on rankings were pretty exciting. I um just want to read real quick one line that opens very early in the in the book. Page 49, uh, a quote from Leon Botstein, who in a 2001 New York Times interview stated that the rankings system is uh, the most successful journalistic scam I have seen in my entire adult lifetime, a catastrophic fraud, corrupt, intellectually bankrupt, and revolting. I am so curious, even now today, we hear some of the leading minds around higher education thought leadership, administration, innovation, saying things like, I know that the rankings are bad, but they they are here to stay. And I'm curious from your perspective that even though we've seen so much evidence proving that all of the ways that rankings hurt higher education, why have they remained so potent in this industry?
1: Well, I think the short answer is because Uh, prospective applicants to colleges and graduate schools take them seriously. And when applicants take rankings seriously, the colleges and universities are going to take them seriously as well, even if they don't like them. It's interesting that you quoted that comment, pithy, spicy comment by Leon Botstein. He made that comment over 20 years ago, and yet it wasn't until last month that he decided that his college, Bard College, would pull out of the rankings. So there's an example of somebody who was harshly critical of the rankings and yet uh, continued to comply with them, continued to cooperate with them. And I think it's because he obviously felt, as most educators do, that uh, applicants take them seriously. That begs the question uh, that you might be poised to ask me, Kevin, which is, why do applicants take them seriously? And I think there are lots of reasons, but there are two main reasons. One is the promise of simplicity, simplification. Choosing a college or even a graduate school is a really complicated and very consequential decision. For uh, 17, 18-year-old high schoolers, it's probably the biggest, most complicated decision they've made yet in their life. And they want, somebody to help them simplify it. And along comes somebody like U.S. News and says, don't worry, we will simplify it. We will take all of the many, many different criteria and factors that you would consider, and we will distill it into a single number for you. So that's one thing. And then the second thing is status. I think a lot of people, not by any means all, but a lot of people choose to go to college and even graduate school, so as to enhance their social status. They want a credential. They want a pedigree. And, you know, as I say in the book, in England, the crown confers pedigree. But in America, it's U.S. News that confers pedigree. So if you're interested in pedigree, you want to go to a school that an outfit like U.S. News says is really good. And you can be proud of the fact that you're going to hang its diploma on your wall for the rest of your life.
0: It's an interesting conversation here. I think that's, I think the point you make around the Bard College example, that's exactly what we see in the work that we do every day. We don't like this behind closed doors, but here's our application or here's our qualifications for for rankings. And I think that's the ongoing conversation that I'm trying to kind of unpack here. And I think in the last several months, we have seen law schools and medical schools finally leaving the ranking system. We saw RISD um, not too long ago pull out of the ranking system as well. Why do you think this is kind of happening now, and what will it take to get more undergraduate institutions to follow suit? Uh, You talk about this briefly in your book, but I'd love for our listeners to get a kind of a high-level view of what you're thinking there.
1: Yeah, well, actually, the um, boycott of U.S. news by the law schools and some of the medical schools uh, occurred after my book came out. I guess I'll have to talk about it in the second edition. (laughs) But uh, I think that, you know, I've talked to some of the law school deans whom I know, And uh, my sense is they got sort of exhausted with the hypocrisy of cooperating with a system that really fundamentally uh, conflicts with their values. Now, to be sure, they'd been doing it for 30 years. So what's changed? Well, in the last year or so, there's been a mounting degree of criticism of the rankings. My book is one example of that, but there have been news stories about universities and individuals who have lied to the U.S. news rankers and got caught doing it. Columbia University was an example, and that was given uh, national, international uh, publicity because of Columbia's prominence. And then there's been a great deal of criticism of the uh, way in which the rankings privilege the privileged, as I say, and give, you know, essentially advantage to the people who are already academically and economically advantaged. And I think, you know, especially a lot of the law schools whose mission, after all, is something to do with justice. It's really something to do with promoting justice and making the world a a better, juster place, just found it increasingly difficult to defend cooperating with the rankings, given um, their mission. I think the medical schools, the, the top tier medical schools, have felt the same way. Uh, you know, their job is to serve the public and to serve the community and not simply to promote prestige and wealth. The undergraduate schools, well, it's an interesting question. Why haven't more of them uh, followed their law school and medical school cousins? To date, I'm only aware of three. You mentioned the Rhode Island School of Design, and I mentioned DeBard College, and then Colorado College, a very well-regarded, relatively highly-ranked liberal arts college recently pulled out. There are special reasons in each of those three cases, but what's interesting is that they are not the industry leaders the way the right. first uh, group to, of the law schools and medical schools to pull out. You know, and I've said often if there's going to be a significant withdrawal from rankings by undergraduate institutions, it has to start with the industry leaders. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, not the quirky, you know, individualized, distinctive schools like Reed and the others I mentioned, but Princeton and Harvard and Yale and Williams and Amherst and Pomona. Those are the ones who are going to have to pull out. And they're obviously well aware of the controversy, Amherst College being my alma mater. um, I know the president, the new president there quite well. And I published an article in the winter 2023 edition of their alumni magazine about rankings and about my book. So they're obviously thinking about it. But at the moment, I think they're waiting to see what happens to the law schools and the medical schools to see maybe if U.S. News is going to punish them.
0: Yeah. Uh, You do a really great job. Well, first of all, you do a great job of breaking down the different components of the ranking system and explaining why they are somewhat broken. And then you do a really great job of explaining some of the ramifications or the consequences some institutions have faced, including Reed in rebuking some of the ranking structures. And the other point is really a great one as well is around the, the schools like Colorado College, who just exist differently in the higher ed space and around how they deliver education, et cetera. Those are the ones that I would expect to be a bit more vocal in their refusal or rejection of the ranking system. And I'm glad that some of those schools are doing that. I'm curious about your perspective on which seems or feels like the better solution. Is it about changing the rankings methodology altogether to be more equitable, or is it having more institutions walk away from the practice entirely, or is it something else?
1: (laughs) Well, you know, my idea of kind of the ideal world of rankings is that there not be a single dominant one-size-fits-all kind of ranking, as exemplified, of course, by U.S. News. But instead, there would be six or seven or eight different rankings that all measured different qualities, different aspects of higher education, and that they would each have comparable credibility. They w- there would be no one dominant ranking, but there would be a lot of different ones. Uh, for example, there'd be a ranking of quality of instruction which is hard to rank, but so is everything. There'd be a ranking of social mobility. There'd be a ranking of graduation rates. There'd be a ranking of return on investment, uh, maybe a ranking of affordability, maybe a ranking of uh, ethnic and racial diversity. And all of these are possible. In fact, most of them are already can be found in in various uh, places. Even U.S. News provides some specialized rankings uh, from time to time. And the question is, to come back to your question, how do we get there? So I think the first thing that we have to do is we have to dismantle the monopoly. And it's not a real monopoly, but it's certainly market power. We have to dismantle the the market power of U.S. news. The only way I can think of to do that is to have a lot of schools pull out and and do so in a very public way, very noisy way. And What that does is it sends very powerful messages to the applicant population, the potential applicant population, that these rankings aren't to be trusted. If all the Ivy League universities say they're garbage, then, gee, maybe they are garbage. You know, that's kind of what has to happen. And then in place of this foolish, idiotic, one-size-fits-all, we can reduce the complexity of higher education to one-number kind of ranking would grow up, you know, a respectable group of different kinds of rankings. And people, as they think about applying to college, would start not with the question, what is the best college? But start with the question, who am I? And what do I need? And what do I want from higher education? And then they could look for the kind of ranking that would answer their questions. So that's what I hope will happen.
0: I think the ancillary benefit there is that that would then encourage institutions to talk about themselves more authentically and you could you would find a bit more distinction or differentiation in all the offers uh, that exist in the higher ed space. Uh, one of the issues that we find so often in the marketing of higher education is that at the end of the day the The product you are getting in in return for your investment is basically the same, the qualification, the credential um, that you receive, but all of the things that make a college experience or an institutional experience what it is are some of the things that you don't find in ranking structures right? around student life and diversity, all these other things. And so making sure that there is space for the really important and critical parts of a student experience to be found and talked about authentically and openly is going to be, I think, an ancillary benefit to walking away from this ranking structure cuz right now everything looks the same because everything is graded on the same uh, rubric.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, my good friend Crystal Williams, who's the new president at Rhode Island School of Design, pointed this out when she explained why they pulled out. RISD is a unique school. You know, it is a very specialized, distinctive school, and it's now so. it is now being just thrown together in the US News rankings along with hundreds of sort of general mainstream uh, regional universities. And I think she recognized that, you know, that obliterates their distinction. And that's what the rankings do. They obliterate distinctiveness. I mean, think about the minority serving universities. There are some miraculously wonderful, historically black colleges and universities. They don't get any credit for doing what they do, which is unique in our culture they just get thrown into the rankings and of course because they're not terribly well endowed they tend to fall far down in in the lists
0: that's the the next space i was actually going to move to i think about all the schools doing really great work uh, who happen to be under-resourced and underfunded, who work real hard to get the outcomes that they're trying to get for their students and fall very low on the ranking system or ranking structure. And that has always been such a challenge for me to understand, especially when it comes to the endowment piece. Um, I know many of people have heard the Malcolm Gladwell series on higher education and rankings. And there was really a lot of great arguments made in that those episodes around Dillard College, yes. um, Dillard University, I'm sorry. And these are the kinds of things that I think about When young people or any learner is trying to make a decision on where to go to college and you go to a list that essentially is lifting up the same institutions that were not made for people who didn't look like (laughs) Europeans, (laughs) <laughs> Europeans, <laughs> for white people. Well, um, like and the so,
1: founders of those universities, right?
0: Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And so those are the kinds of conversations that I think are important to have. I'm glad we're having this one. I want to shift gears a little bit because obviously rankings is a, a proxy for assessing quality. And if we move away from this method of assessing quality, what then takes its place? And does it redefine what quality looks like in the higher ed space?
1: Yeah. Well, I think my previous answer speaks to that question as well. I think that quality in higher education cannot be unidimensional. It it just has to be multidimensional because different people need different things from higher education and different schools offer different things. So, you know, there are uh, so-called access schools, which are primarily trying to reach out to underserved populations, whether they be underserved because of racial or ethnic discrimination or because of uh, economic disadvantage uh, or whatever. And so there needs to be a recognition of the work that they do. And that can only be done by a, a different kind of ranking. But it's not the only ranking. It's just one of many rankings that I think needs to, to be used. I would rather get away from ranking altogether and just list schools by various characteristics that they have. Perhaps the best example is the uh, college scorecard, which is produced by the U.S. Department of Education and is published on their website and is free and easy to access. And everybody who says, I have to use U.S. News because it's one-stop shopping, my answer is No. The college scorecard is one-stop shopping, and it's every bit as good, and it doesn't have those beguiling, distracting numbers, you know, the ranking numbers. It has plenty of numbers, and you can easily compare schools by whatever you're interested in. So if you're really interested in uh, graduation rate, you can compare schools by graduation rate. If you're really interested in affordability, return on investment. They're very big on return on investment, and I understand people want to know. You know, I'm going to spend a lot of money going to school for four years. Am I going to get a return on that investment or not? And, you know, so those are options that I think measure quality. I mentioned academic quality, um, which is extremely hard. And being a lifelong academic, of course, I think that's the one and only primary purpose of higher education. Um, (laughs) Sure, sure. And I'm always upset that the rankings basically ignore it or virtually ignore it but there are some proxies i think for example the percentage of courses that are taught by full-time faculty would be a proxy measures of the percentage of courses that are taught in small enrollment classes but not just in the fall because that just encourages colleges to shift you know the big enrollment courses to the spring but right. you know measure it across the entire academic year and there are stu- student surveys. I mean, they're ter- not terribly reliable, but what they tell you something about what students do. I, I would like to see schools surveyed by the average number of hours that students study in a week. It turns out that that number varies enormously from school to school. Uh, it also turns out, unfortunately, that that number has declined everywhere in the last 50 years. But I think it's a measure of how seriously the academic program is taken. Uh, so there are things like that that could be done to measure academic quality. And I would love to see somebody come along and say, we're going to do a pure academic quality ranking. None of this other stuff, you know, nothing about the SAT student scores of stu- entering students, nothing about institutional wealth, endowment, spending per student, blah, blah, blah. We're going to just try to measure academic quality the best we can.
0: One of the things that I learned reading your book, among many other things, was the consumer reports model of ranking products and how if you're ranked in this magazine or uh, reference, you're not able to market that. And I think about all of the ways in which institutions and the work that I do, marketing institutions, put their stamp right on every homepage, landing page, piece of literature, we are ranked this. And your argument in, in that section of the book was about like, the value of the ranking or or maybe the, the way that the ranking is communicated would shift if there was that kind of rule around higher education rankings. Can you speak a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would love to see the rankings that people pay attention to all be produced by not-for-profit or perhaps governmental bodies that do not take advertising because the business model of U.S. News and most of the other rankings is to basically sell eyeballs to advertisers. That's what they're doing. And they want to attract eyeballs. The way you attract eyeballs is by having these magical numbers that tell you where a particular school belongs in a hierarchy. But they also accept advertising from many of the schools that they rank. Many mm-hmm. of these rankings, if you look at their their webpage, <laughs> you'll see schools popping up that obviously don't deserve to be ranked where they are, but they're popping up where they do because they're advertising. They're paying for advertising. (laughs) Right. So, you know, right between the ranking for Stanford and Princeton, you'll see a ranking for Podunk University, which has bought the right to advertise on that web page. So stuff like that, to me, undermines the credibility of the whole enterprise. And the people who do the rankings should be, professionals who know something about higher education not a bunch of amateurs U.S news people call themselves journalists they're not they're not journalists they are amateur rankings producers that's what they are and I'd like to see you know professionals who are professional academics professional Educators curating the data and presenting it and uh, that I think would give the rankings however they're produced or presented a lot more credibility.
0: I love it. Colin Diver came with a smoke this morning. I love it. I love it. (laughs) I only have two more questions for you. And one is around higher education administration. And in this book and in several other uh, spaces, I, Here And I've read about presidents behind closed doors saying, listen, I understand that this is messed up, but this is just something that we have to do. Is there something that presidents need to know or hear that will help them shift away from this ranking structure that we haven't talked about already in this conversation?
1: Well, I wrote about this in an article in 2005 in the Atlantic Monthly, and I said, Reed College, which pulled out of the rankings in 1995, has not only survived, but it has thrived. And the reason is because it made the fact that it rejected the rankings part of its signature, part of its message to its audience. And it basically said, we are looking for people who take academic pursuits really seriously, who really care about research and investigation and uh, the use of evidence. And those are the people who would recognize that rankings are bogus, they're phony. And therefore, the fact that we've rejected cooperating with the rankings would actually appeal to those people. So part of my message to schools that really do care about the academic integrity of their product and the intellectual rigor of their instruction is to make that part of your message. This is why we've pulled out. Likewise, if you really care about public service, you know, whether it be social mobility on the way in the door or helping students prepare for lives of public service on the way out the door, reject the rankings and say to your public, we reject the rankings because they celebrate wealth and privilege and they undermine the credibility of public service. So that would be my advice to these presidents. And, you know, I think they know this. In effect, they've heard this before, right. um, but they're afraid. They're afraid that their constituency is so gullible mm. and, um, you know, so easily, you know, distracted and, and misled by these rankings. And they're afraid, of course, also that U.S. News is going to dump them if they stop providing data to them, uh, just the way it did initially dump Reed College. Right. Um, and I understand that's that's a legitimate concern. They have to worry about their product, after all, and their brand. But they also, I think, should be thinking about what kind of a legacy they're going to leave after a lifetime in higher education. And what are they going to be proud of to tell their grandchildren or their great-grandchildren? And I don't think the fact that, well we hated the rankings, but we knuckled under them because we uh, thought that our constituency was too dumb to take them for what they're worth. I don't think that's something you're going to want to tell your grandchildren.
0: Right, right. I think about Before we get to this last question, I think about, and this is a question I've asked other guests on this show, if ranking and prestige can exist in the same space as diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives on college campuses. And I, for one, think that a ranking system is counterintuitive to diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives on campuses, among all many other consequences and impacts it can have on a higher ed experience. And I think presidents uh, would do well with understanding the kind of ramifications of these rankings on their uh, student experience in those kinds of other student life uh, ways. Last question for you, either rankings aside or in the middle. Um, I'm curious what your thoughts are on the future of uh, higher education in America. I, I think about all the politicization that's happening, all the challenges we have around trust and return on investment. What do you think this is going to look like in five, 10 or 20 years or or more, whichever.
1: Oh, uh, well, you know, it's very hard to predict the future in any domain. Um, <laughs> yeah, But I start from the proposition that institutions of higher education are engineered for stability, more so than the businesses in almost any other industry that I can think of. As we've seen, banks change a lot. <laughs> and they sometimes get themselves into huge trouble as a result of that. And, you know, High-tech firms, you know, they they buy other firms and they change dramatically. But higher education is, you know, kind of designed to remain the same. So I guess what I would say is that the elite sector of higher education is going to look pretty much the way it does today in 5, 10, or 25 years because they're engineered to do that and because they have the cushion. They have the brand value the reputation, and God knows they have the endowment. They produce alumni who make a lot of money, and they keep them very happy. So they, in effect, have engineered a very, very reliable income stream from donations. Where I think you're going to see a big change, however, is in the lower tiers, the less selective tiers, if you will, of higher education. These are the ones, unfortunately, who do most of the really important work in higher education, because... They're the ones who try to educate people of color and lower income people and immigrants and people uh, who are older and have families and uh, have disabilities and you name it. And what's going to happen, I'm afraid, is that there's going to be a lot of closures and there's going to be a lot of consolidation in that slice of, of the market. And it's going to happen for, I guess, two primary reasons. First, there is, of course, just plain demographic change. Uh, The population of high schoolers is declining, particularly, of course, in the Northeast and in the West, Mm -hmm. much less so in the South. But the other reason is because of this uh, growing movement to provide alternative pathways to white collar jobs without requiring a college degree. Uh, Mm -hmm. We've heard about The governor of Pennsylvania is saying, you know, we're not going to require a college degree in order to hire people into white collar jobs. We've heard about lots of of the biggest private employers in the country doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And what's going to happen is that there's going to be a growth in an industry of skills assessment, which enables these employers to determine whether people that they might hire have the skills that they want and that they need. And they're not going to insist that people have a, a bachelor's degree. And when that happens, I think there's going to be a, a big retreat from higher education. And I think it's going to really hammer the less selective institutions because a lot of the people who go to those institutions now will say, "Why should I, you know, spend the money and the time and the effort for?" getting a a bachelor's degree when I can get the skills on the job uh, or some other way. And I think that is what the future looks like. And we've seen in Pennsylvania, for example, a big consolidation of their public sector. Uh, A lot of their Mm -hmm. uh, campuses are being consolidated into a few of the sort of flagship type schools. I think we're going to see a lot of that going forward. And the other things that are going on in higher education, well, you know, there is this shift away from the liberal arts and away from the disciplines that the liberal arts teaches, like literature and philosophy and the humanities, toward a much more vocationally oriented, trendy current kinds of content, computer programming and various mm-hmm. kinds of engineering and so forth. And I suppose that will continue, but the irony there is that a lot of those kinds of skills are the skills that I just talked about, which can be learned on the job or in other methods. You know, my son studied art. He he got an MFA, but like most artists, decided he was never going to make any money painting. So he taught himself to be a computer program. And he is now a very skilled senior engineer at, you know, one of the big tech firms in the country. And people will be increasingly doing that. And so... All these schools that are you know, getting rid of their philosophy and humanities departments and investing like crazy in computer science, I think they're going to have a comeuppance.
0: I agree with you 100% on all of the things that you just said. Colin Diver, thank you so much for joining us today. Again, his book, Breaking Ranks, How the Rankings Industry Rules Higher Education and What to Do About It. Available on Amazon and other bookstores. Uh, a great read. Incredible. Thank you for joining That's us today. I really appreciated the conversation and you sharing your thoughts. It was great. It
1: was my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Kevin.
0: That's it for this week's episode of Higher Voltage. We'll be back soon with a new episode. And until then, you can find us on Twitter at Volt Higher Ed. And you can find me, Kevin Tyler, on Twitter at Kevin C. Tyler2.